to Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, top supply chain industry professionals and the nation's top thought leaders join host Brian Strait and share their unique insights to help supply chain managers stay one step ahead of their competition. This is Talking Supply Chain. Hello, my name is Brian Strait, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Management Review, and this is Talking Supply Chain. Thank you for joining us today. Environmental, social, and governance, or ESG as it's more commonly known, has become a hot topic among businesses for several years now. But it's been seen to be running into some obstacles lately. Um, to be more clear, ESG typically refers to things such as carbon footprint and sustainability. That's the E part of the ESG. The S applies to social elements such as how operational policies and practices impact employees. And the G usually refers to regulatory and compliance obligations and how they're met. These days, in many cases, it's the S and the G part of ESG that are causing companies the most issues. Our guest today is the CPO of Aravo, which offers third-party management software that helps businesses manage risk. I'd like to welcome Dean Alms to our program. Hello, Dean. Hello. Thank you, and thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you. Glad to have you with us and talk about this subject. Uh, can, you, can you start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Aravo? Sure. And uh, given the audience, uh, CPO at Aravo means chief product officer, not procurement officer, which it often means in in many supply chain organizations. So uh, um, so I am the chief product officer for Aravo. And um, I've been in the company for a little over a year now, but I've been in enterprise software for 25 plus years, with the greater part of that being in uh, software as a service. Um, before I started um, at Aravo, I didn't know that much about TPRM, but as I looked into it, I found this uh, space extremely fascinating. Yeah, well, it is, obviously, <laughs> and, and, and important, and increasingly important these days. Um, can, to kind of get into it, let's. You know, it, it seems to me that ESG, it, in most cases, represent good business practices, right? We hear that a lot with businesses, ESG, ESG. Yes. Um, but it's running into some political and public concerns these days, and we'll get into those a little bit, both of which, though, create added risk for you. Um, kind of starting on the political side of this a little bit here, governments are increasingly getting involved with new regulations that are all designed to cut carbon emissions, et cetera. Um, President Joe Biden has set a goal to make the U.S. a zero emissions economy no later than 2050. To get there, it's probably going to, let's be honest, require a lot of regulations, and that's going to be a significant lift for business. Can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing on the regulatory front, especially when we have regulations that are coming both from Washington and individual states such as California? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and certainly that is the case. And I think it's widely known that we're seeing more and more regulation around the, the umbrella term ESG. But but actually, United States is actually trailing Europe um, because, you you know, the uh, German uh, Supply Chain Act and, and then there's other countries over there in the European Union are, are taking on various initiatives as well. So uh, and then Canada more recently introduced legislation around this. So uh, United States, while it is a very hot topic, it is uh, almost trailing the European unions in terms of the amount of regulations that are underway uh, to try to, you know, uh, to try to do more in and helping companies or not, you know, basically helping companies understand what is expected of them going forward with their supply chain. 
Yeah. And that, and that's probably important to note too, because supply chains are global, right? And so absolutely, I mean, you, you can, you can match our requirements in the United States, but you may not be meeting the requirements necessary in Germany or Europe or Asia, depending on what those may be. Um, th that creates this patchwork of regulations, right? That I have to believe has to be confusing <laughs> for businesses. Absolutely. Um, you know, absolutely. What, what, what's the best way for business leaders to kind of stay up on top of all this? I mean, is it, is it, do you have to have somebody in place to manage it? Is there, is there resources out there that you could get to? Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's a couple of things. Number one, um, a lot of the ways companies have responded to risk, ESG and other risk, whether it's ABAC or information security, data privacy, all of these various risks that have uh, have required the attention of organizations, especially with their supply chain. Um, they basically need to look at this as a centralized discipline in some way with a hybrid approach of getting other parts of the organization involved. Unfortunately, because these various risk domains have popped up over time, there is literally a patchwork of solutions within the enterprise as well. So IT will take on initiatives, procurement will take on initiatives, new sustainability organizations, and pretty soon you have very fragmented technologies trying to manage these risks almost independently. And, 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 and that becomes a challenge unto itself because I don't get unified visibility into my risk exposure of working with an individual company because the various risk profiles are scattered about in different technologies. So it's not just, it's not just managing um, the regulations in the, in the countries or the regions, but it, even within your own business. It is. It is. And, it's, you know, and that's what we see more than anything else is companies that have been doing this for a while are turning to Aravo because we do work on providing that unified visibility across not only the ESG domains, but ABAC and InfoSec and other areas that are you know equally important to these companies as they move forward. Yeah. But when, you know, going to your, your core question there about how do you stay on top of all these regulations, and it is difficult. And each individual company shouldn't try to tackle that themselves in terms of calling this information together. They should rely on their software providers on other, uh, you know, consulting organizations that are constantly monitoring that. If there is, you know, I hate to bring up the AI term so early, but if there is one uh, huge opportunity for AI, it is to monitor all of the regulations that are going on around the world, bring that to bear. So then you can, you know, assess whether that particular change in regulation or new New regulation is going to impact your operations, but it, it is so um, frequent and so many changes that if if we don't take it a little bit more seriously, we're just going to ca get caught off guard by something that you know a regulation that happened outside of our our line of scope if we, if we're not careful. Yeah, technology has made that so much easier. You know, honestly, I have no idea how businesses in the forties, fifties, and sixties, even the seventies, kind of kept track of this this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the work that had to have gone into that to, to manage and, and monitor these things at all these strange places all around the world that you, you know, most pe yeah. many people haven't even heard of, but you're getting raw materials from or what have you. But yeah, I was in the um, HR software space for a while. And if you think about all of the taxes and all of the different um, HR type of regulations around the world, um, they kind of were the uh, pioneers in having to deal with so many country by country, state by state, even city by city uh, laws and things of that nature. And and so there's something to be learned from how they uh, tackled that. And, and, you know, the technology providers stepped up and, and made sure that companies were compliant with all of these different uh, HR related regulations. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, shifting gears a little bit, though, I want to move beyond regulations, which obviously is a big issue. We could do an entire podcast just on regulations. Absolutely. For sure. Um, but I want to touch on a couple of other topics. Um, one of them is, is something that several businesses, many businesses are running into this issue. Um, and, and that is the the push to make sure that your raw materials and products are being sourced from sustainable environments and socially responsible suppliers. Um, this is not new, right? Child labor has, I mean, we've talked about child labor for decades, right? Yes. But let's be completely honest here. As Americans, we like cheap stuff, right? I mean, that's part of why manufacturing moved out of this country because it was cheaper to build out, make it elsewhere. But that comes with costs, right? And, and now those costs are coming back to us and we're realizing that, you know, some of those li- some of those costs were cheaper because child labor was involved in, in some of these countries. So social media, though, has really put a spotlight, I think, on this, right? Because it's very easy now if somebody finds out about what a company is doing and blasts it out on social media, and then suddenly the company is in some trouble. Um, human rights are an issue, obviously. Um, and, and these things are now front and center like they never have before. To, to give a couple of examples, for instance, um, U.S.-based First Solar in August said that it did an independent review of its Malaysian operations and found that subcontractors were using unethical recruitment tactics and withheld pay from workers. Canada, the Canadian government this summer, launched investigations into Walmart and Hugo Boss over allegations of forced labor in their supply chain. So this is a big issue for companies. It's not just it's not just big companies, small companies too. And and in many cases, small companies think if Walmart is having this issue, right? What what about the smaller company that doesn't have the resources that Walmart has to kind of track this? So it, it, it's it's really a risk for these companies. And ESG is really about risk management anyway, in many ways. So you I guess my question to you is you, you speak with companies on a regular basis are these kind of incidents starting to get their attention? Is there legitimate concerns on their part that maybe they don't know where their sourcing is coming from or things that they need to do to make sure that their sourcing is meeting these minimum standards at the very least? Yeah. I mean, yeah, the short answer is yes, they're very um, becoming increasingly aware of, of what is um going on in their supply chain and, and the need to know whether they uh, have that complete visibility or not. They're making the investments to get that greater visibility into all, you know, their extended enterprise, what, who is doing what, and, you know, what business practices are they using. So what is, what is very clear is that companies, especially larger companies, are increasingly held accountable for the sins of their suppliers. It's not that they hired, you know, uh, slave labor, but if, if their companies that they bought from do that, then they're held accountable for it. And that accountability for what their suppliers are doing is clearly uh, registering in the minds of um, the boardroom and the executive offices, and, and they need to make the investments accordingly. Yeah. Are, are they are they doing enough from an investment standpoint? I mean, that's, that's a very broad question, right? I mean, some companies are doing a lot, some maybe not so much, but I guess maybe as an industry, are we doing enough at this point to monitor this stuff or is there more that needs to be done? Yeah, I think, and once again, because of the way risk management has evolved with various pockets of risk, I mean, Aravo has been around for 20 years, so long before ESG became a term, um, you know, we we helped companies in terms of managing their supply chain and, and making sure human rights weren't violated or whether environmental issues, whether it's waste management or responsible mining or forestry, all of those types of things we were working on with companies long before the ESG became a term. But as I mentioned before, 
it happened in a very fragmented way. So you had different technologies at play for managing different types of risk. And that creates a lot of redundancy issues because I need to know who are my suppliers and what am I buying from them? And there's a litany of risk I need to assess against those. If I'm doing that in a fragmented way, then I've got multiple databases of all my suppliers and you know all of the uh, other related attributes associated with that suppliers. And that becomes a huge challenge for companies. Yeah. I, I, and supply chains are so complex these days. I mean, even when you think you might be buying from somebody, you may not be. You know, because exactly. They may, be, they may be outsourcing to somebody else on top of that. So yeah. um, I, I think data sharing, communication is probably really important in this, these steps as well. Um, and yeah. technology helps with that, obviously. It is a, you know, it is a relatively new discipline that is getting, like I said, more centralized focus, more need for unified visibility across all these risk domains. So there's still a way to go. And in, in the way we talk about it is third party risk management is not something you implement. It is a journey that takes time and, and you're going through a process of series of implementations based on the priorities of the organization. Some of our companies start with InfoSec, some start with ESG, some start with ABAC or anti-bribery and, and corruption. So all of these uh, initiatives based on the priority of the organization, you know, will come first, second or third. But in, in many cases, you know, what we say is think big about your overall third party management program, risk management program, start small and then move aggressively in terms of tackling more and more of these solutions. Yeah. Does, does that as as companies look as far as where they're going to start and which, which area they're going to tackle first. Does the countries that they may be getting their suppliers are coming from, does that play a role in it? I mean, they, I imagine there's some countries that maybe bribery is a much greater concern, for instance. Um, yeah. I mean, it's countries. Yep, yeah, for sure. And, you know, when it gets to the point where, you know, we identify certain countries and you're like, okay, your risk factor is high just because you are working in that particular country or and sometimes it's an industry oriented things where uh, anti-bribery and anti-corruption is more prevalent than other industries and so there's a number of different attributes that we pull through a data collection process and then we score those companies based on how they match up against that and then they take whatever mitigation strategies they have to do and it's not always you know a, a clear cut. Sometimes you have to deal with a high risk company and continue to work with them because there are no other alternatives. And, you know, that's, that's beyond an individual company decision. If I can only buy semiconductors from one part of the world and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, that concentrated risk there, I don't have a choice as an individual company until there's more places where I can buy certain supplies. Uh, I'm at the mercy of what the supply chain offers. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of ties a little bit to my next question. Um, to, to give throw a stat out there for people, um, we love data, right? So, yeah. from July, from June 2022 to July 2023, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection detained over 1.75 billion dollars worth of products at ports due to concerns over their origin. Now, the the number is a big number. Um, the number of shipments in, in the grand scheme of things probably is not so much. Um, that number represented a little over 5,000 shipments during that time frame. But I, I guess my concern here, my, my, the, what caught my attention was that they detained about 5,000 shipments, but they only released 2,000 ultimately. So 3,000 shipments were not released because they had concerns or they didn't believe that this stuff came from um, areas that it could be released into this country. And so I guess the question is that we've heard a lot about transparency, supplier transparency. So how does this keep happening? 
like why, why do these shipments keep getting delayed are we missing something here or is this a case of companies just taking the risk yeah i think you know as regulations get more and more teeth and government responses get more aggressive these types of painful stories are really going to force companies to take this more seriously and you know it it is going to impact their their revenue streams and everything else and so they have to take it more seriously and make the investments uh, accordingly and you know part of this um is i believe personal opinion here is because of what has happened to the U.S. manufacturing base over the last couple of decades, um, I, I think there is a significant number of manufacturers that feel that, um, you know, we operate under a different playing field than the rest of the world, especially over in Asia and China and things of that nature, because they tend to ignore some of the environmental and social issues that companies in the U.S. have to address. And as a result of that, you know, I think U.S. government is saying we've got to level that playing field a little bit more and we can't just look at the direct cost of what we're buying. We're going to force companies to look at those indirect costs, meaning the environmental impact, the social impact, those types of things when they make a buying decision just so we can rebuild our manufacturing base. Now, once again, that is a very macro type of view of that. But if you think about it, if I only have to think about what I pay for the product and not worry about the indirect costs to social environmental issues, then, you know, I'm going to continue to buy from countries that don't take that as seriously. So I, I believe that's a big part of it. Yeah. And and that, that ties in, I think, to some of what's happening in the supply chain, right? I mean, COVID forced companies either because they had to or because now they've decided that this is a good idea to diversify their supply chains, right? So we've seen a lot of manufacturing shifted from China. Um, Mexico is one area that a lot has gone to, um, but also a lot of other Asian countries. The That $1.75 billion worth of products that was uh, detained at ports that I mentioned a minute ago, over a billion dollars of that came out of Malaysia. So clearly it sounds like Malaysia, the, Malaysia is an issue, but yet there's a lot of manufacturing that's moving into Malaysia. Um, right. So our, our visibility is not very good there. Um, yeah, the infrastructure is not there yeah. for for what um, for that shift to occur. Right, we shifted the manufacturing, but the visibility and the info information that we need out of that is hasn't caught up yet. Yeah. So I, I think I, I guess what I'm what I'm curious about is that as the companies look to diversify supply chains, because this seems to be a trend that's continuing, is going to continue for the next several years. Um, how do we continue to say, hey, you know, ESG is really important. We want to we have these goals. We're going to meet them. Um, but then we go into these areas where we don't have visibility. And now suddenly while we're talking about ESG, we're not actually achieving it. Yeah. And um, and once again, I think, you know, I've talked to large energy companies and uh, pharmaceutical financial services and, and for them. You know, whatever the political wins are, are given time, whether it, whatever administration's in charge, they see ESG as a long term. Um, this is the way of the world. And it doesn't matter who's in charge at any given point in time. This is the way of the world. And so they're going to make investments to get there. Now, at any given point in time, there are definitely going to be some pain points. There's going to be some high frustrations and things of that nature. But I think directionally, it'll continue to move along this path, just because, as you mentioned earlier, the social pressure um, from um you know, from, from consumers that have access to all of these social media and 24-hour yeah. news, it is going to continue to uh, um, cause companies to take 
take a step up and take notice of, of what they need to do along this front. Yeah, I, I think social media has become such a, a, a an effort of change, you know, a, a, for companies and, and what they do. And, you know, it, it's so easy now for something to just get put on social media, true or not, for the, you know, yep. to be honest. And then suddenly it's being seen by 300,000 people. Right. You know, within hours. And, you know, da- companies can be damaged badly by this. I mean, not just in ESG, but I mean, in, in a lot of areas, obviously. Um, so, I mean, that's obviously a very a concern for companies these days. And, and ESG, part of that is, you know, that, that ties into ESG a little bit, too, in the social. You know, you don't want to become a negative viral uh, sensation. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and it's um, it, it often catches, catches them off guard and they're like, holy cow, we had no idea that this would explode the way it did. And uh, and, you know, so it, they just need to be mindful of it. And, you know, I think it, it relates to um, as much as ESG, it relates to greenwashing of trying to pretend that you're ESG compliant and when you're really just marketing it. And that that's what really gets um, consumers frustrated is is pretending that you're environmentally sensitive or socially sensitive when it's it's a marketing ploy versus yeah. an actual operational change. Yeah. I Just as an aside, I mean, if, if your company doesn't have a crisis communications plan in place, you really should have one. Uh, yeah. Or yeah. have connect or have connections to, you know, communications firms that can provide those because I, I guarantee you of everybody listening today, 50% of them are going to need this at some point in the next couple of years. At, yeah, at least I, probably even higher than that. <laughs> so. I totally agree. It is, it is, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, when we think about ESG, a lot of the times people think about the cost of complying, right? It's the operational cost of complying with these ESG regulations or, or initiatives and things of that nature. But the companies that do best with it are those companies that realize um, there is this need to avoid brand and financial liability um, as a result of ESG, as well as the need to protect revenue streams. And those companies that look at revenue streams and understand that, hey, if they're not doing this in the right way, they may lose a supplier that is essential to their overall revenue stream. Or if they work with the wrong company, they're going to have such brand damage, it is going to cost them enormous amounts of money to recover from that. So the cost of you know, TPRM and compliance and, and building these systems to help them get visibility and control over this is fractional compared to some of these fines that companies face. I mean, we had one company, um, you know, that um, turned to us afterwards, but they basically got fined over $100 million for an ABAC issue. They got fined four times that because they were negligent in terms of putting controls in place to make sure they were paying attention to ABAC issues. So it's, it's really, you know, it, it is the cost of those types of things and the potential revenue impact that is really should be their business motivations more than the actual cost of compliance. Yeah. And it, it co- it, in many ways, I think it, it ties back to that. What's the old saying that like pound uh, was it pound wise penny? What is that? <laughs> pound, pound wise penny foolish or something. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, in essence, I mean, like, it, it may be cheaper to get some of this stuff, but if something goes wrong, it may cost you a lot more in the end than it would have cost you just to pay a little bit more. Um, yeah, and it just goes back to these these larger companies and even medium-sized companies are being more and more held accountable for the sins of their suppliers. And so if if you don't take that seriously, then you're going to be caught off guard, and it, it may cost you more than you ever realized. Yeah. Um, 
you you mentioned one um, one customer there. I was wondering if you had a couple of examples you could share of how maybe some companies have gone on and achieved some of their goals um, while maintaining profitability. Because I think that's a concern for many people when you add anything. How does that impact the bottom line? Yeah, I mean, there's a you know the companies don't like to be named in this space for obvious reasons. So you know we certainly work with. Uh, consumer packaged goods companies, and a lot of them have elevated, you know, they don't call it ESG as often, they call it their chief sustainability officer, right? And so they are looking at the supply chain from an overall sustainability perspective, and ESG falls underneath that, but so do other things. Um, And and so those are the companies that are doing the best with it, because they see it as a competitive advantage, not as a compliance type of issue. And then there's, you know, other companies that, um, whether it's ABAC or InfoSec, you know, InfoSec is huge is probably one of the leading beachhead areas for managing your overall risk because you have data breaches and you have data privacy issues that once again can cost you enormous amounts of money. So those companies that you know go after that are, are really responding to what are the most urgent issues in their arena. For pharmaceutical and financial services, it really has to do with their regulatory environment. Both of those are heavily regulated and, you know, there is no excuse for not having greater visibility and, and providing those uh, reports, et cetera. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, as we, as you talk about visibility, I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast, obviously, on how to achieve that and whatnot. And that's probably a yeah. topic for another day. But um, you mentioned chief supply, chief sustainability officers, and a lot of companies are adding those. But, you know, I wonder, are there enough companies that are elevating um, ESG type programs or risk management or chief sustainability officers, for instance, into their C-suite. Is, is that is that something, do we need to have that because now this is becoming such an important thing? You know, that yeah, I, I think a representative there, do you need it? Yeah, I think that's existed in pharma and uh, financial services for a while under chief risk officers and things of that nature, just because of the nature of it. But certainly in consumer packaged goods, high tech and things of that nature, you're definitely seeing an, uh, an increased number of, of those types of uh, uh, roles insert themselves into the C-suite, if you will. I think Lego, uh, the toy company, just announced this week that they've uh, hired a new uh, chief sustainability officers. So, you know, it, it is becoming, you know, more and more prevalent across the, uh, uh, across various industries and around the world that companies, you know, see this as essential to their overall business as they should, because as we mentioned, the cost of uh, liability and the impact on revenue streams is, is too significant to ignore. Yeah. Um, I want to get to one final question. Um, kind of uh, kind of sum this all up a little bit. Um, we've, we've touched on a lot of different things here, but when it comes down to it, ESG is really a risk management program. That's what it's ultimately about, right? It's risk management and and business case, obviously, but you've got pressure from shareholders, from customers. Um, we mentioned social media that can quickly turn into major headaches for companies. I, mean, I, I think we all remember, not necessarily an ESG issue, but the Budweiser situation from early this year, right? With, with yeah. The, the trans influencer target had issues with some of their pride merchandise. Um, these things can quickly balloon out of control for companies. So as, as a company is trying to thread the needle and, and achieve ESG, it meet its obligations and manage the demands from the shareholders, the customers, et cetera. Um, can you close with any advice you might have for these companies? I mean, is there an easy way to kind of achieve this or, or steps to get started on doing this? Yeah. And, I, you know, I think I've alluded to it uh, in, already in our conversation, which is, you know, think 
take a bigger picture view, even though you might have to start small with one particular area, take that bigger picture view of, hey, I've got to manage risk across a number of domains. So for us at Arava, we have 14 different modules in the ESG arena alone because some companies need to focus on, like I mentioned, waste management or water management or how they deal with uh, if they're in the forestry, uh, get their supplies from the forestry industry or mining. All of these different domains, you know, they need unified visibility across the board there. So think big, start small and move move aggressively based on your various risk profiles. I think, you know, I'll date myself here, but if we turn the clock back to the 1980s, there was a, a major quality issue in manufacturing and we were having a hard time competing with Japan and other companies at that time. And there was a lot of books written and there's a lot of initiatives, but the 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 book that stood out to me or the concept that stood out to me at that time was quality is free. If you invest in quality, you're going to get payback in terms of overall cost and greater revenue if you do the right thing. So quality is free. And in some ways, you could say the same thing for ESG. ESG is free if you think about what it means ultimately from a revenue perspective and from a financial liability and brand perspective, that investment is nowhere near what it would be if you ignore it. And and that's the problem that uh, companies have if they just take a compliance perspective. Ah, I need to comply with the German Supply Chain Act. I need to supply with California's data privacy. If you take that perspective and, and look at it on a piecemeal basis, you're, you're not going to get those, uh, the bigger benefits of, of going after this and as a strategic yeah. initiative versus a compliance initiative. They just end up being cost. cost. They just end up being cost. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you. Um, we're out of time today. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's very complicated times we're living in. I, I don't know how businesses do it, honestly, and I think it's only going to get more complicated. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It is is not easy decisions, but, uh, you know, it's, you know, we'll, we'll tackle it. We, we <laughs> tend to step up to these things. Yep. Well, um, I want to thank our guest today, Dean Alms. Uh, pleasure having you with, us, with me today. Um, look forward to connecting with you again. Talking Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. You can find it on scmr.com, supplychain247.com, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. For more information on this topic or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, a print or a digital subscription to our publication, visit scmr.com. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For Supply Chain Management Review, I'm Brian Strait, and thank you for listening.